uh, patient care theory three, unit three, part one. Uh, we'll just do sort of do a broad overview of cardiac arrest and neonatal arrest and and um, pediatric arrest. Um, so uh, some stats, and you know I don't test on statistics. So, but uh, nonetheless, um, we've seen some pretty significant changes uh, um, in cardiac arrest standards over the last 10 years that have resulted in pretty uh, impressive improvements in, um, in outcomes and survival rates. We know that um, bystander CPR can double or triple survival rates, which is pretty incredible. Uh, so if you're interested in becoming a CPR instructor, um, I recommend it. It's another side stream of income. Plus, um, you'll find that if you end up teaching CPR, you'll feel a lot more confident about running cardiac arrest. If you're, uh, uh, at least I found that when I started out in my career. So, um, about 40%, and some um, research shows up to 50% or more of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest present with a shock algorithm, usually VF, and probably more commonly VT, but that deteriorates fairly quickly into VF. <coughs> and um, we also know that um, uh, that patients who um, experience sudden cardiac arrest oftentimes have not had a myocardial infarct. They've just had an electrical event. So they may have had a bout of angina and boom, they went into a VT or a VF and uh, they're in cardiac arrest. And the good news about that is that if we can initiate CPR quickly and defibrillate them as quickly as possible, then the chances of resuscitating them are good. Um, according to uh, the best research we have at this point, um, your chances of survival in a VF arrest diminish by about, um, I think it's seven to 10 percent with every passing minute. Um, and so obviously the timing is critical, right? So um, do you know where the vast majority of cardiac arrests occur, public places or in the home? Yeah, do you know what percentage happen in the home? It's like, yeah, it's approaching 85%, so it's really high. So if anything, what we need to do is get defibrillators into people's homes, uh, especially people who are high risk. So anyone, you know, say, uh, I'll just pick arbitrarily over the age of 60 or 65. If you've got a cottage or your family's got a cottage and your parents or grandparents are going up there, not a bad idea to get yourself a defibrillator. And they're only about, uh, you can buy them for 800 bucks. Uh, it's well worth it. Um, uh, because it might be, you know, 20, 30 minutes before paramedics arrive. And if you can start CPR and shock them soon, you shock them in under four minutes, your chances of getting a return to spontaneous circulation are pretty darn good. If you can shock them in under a minute, even better, right? So, um, so um, treatment of VF. Uh, right. So we already talked about survival with uh, bystander CPR, and if you're uh, if you're talking about to people about CPR, um, the Heart and Stroke Foundation. Uh, advocates for chest compressions only if that's what people are willing to do not willing to do mouth to mouth but I'll just tell you that uh, apneic CPR is not uh, particularly effective what that means is that 
if you're going to do chest compressions only, and this applies to you as well, you know, when you're off duty, if you're going to do chest compressions only, uh, ideally you want somewhat of a patent airway. So if someone can just, you know, tilt the head or turn the head to the side, if there's a little bit of air exchange with the chest compressions, survival improves dramatically over, uh, let's say, someone who's occluded their airway because their tongue has obstructed their airway. So apneic CPR, not good. Um, but passive breathing with CPR is uh, much better than nothing at all. Um, uh, <coughs> once, uh, once the patient deteriorates into asystole, obviously the prognosis is, is pretty poor at that point, and there are very few survivors. In fact, uh, I think it's less than 1% of people survive from asystole. And when I say survive, we use the Utstein criteria. I, Utstein criteria means, um, and this is not important, I know I'm not gonna test you on this. Um, Utstein means they've gotta have a cerebral performance category of one uh, or two. I think five is, um, you know, like a vegetative state and um, dependent on life support. And one would be perfectly neurologically intact. Two would be sort of minor, neurological dysfunctions. Right. So the idea is to resuscitate them to a point where they're neurologically almost exactly as they were pre-cardiac arrest. And um, when you work for paramedic services, they have, they have these uh, celebrations where they give out awards for s what they call saves. And uh, the saves are based on the Utstein criteria. So survival to discharge to hospital, neurologically intact. So unfortunately, you might get a lot of return to spontaneous circulations. And kudos for you if you do. That's good. Um, at one point, I was getting about nine pulses back for every 10 cardiac arrests. And uh, I, work, I work with this one supervisor. This one supervisor used to come to every cardiac arrest. And every time he came to a cardiac arrest, we always got a pulse back. Like, without exception it was amazing and I thought it was him he thought it was me but um, uh, I'm pretty sure it was him not me anyway um, so uh, that's what survival means so the links in the chain of survival this was I think based on the 2005 standards and basically 2005 I believe it was 2005 um, the the focus became uh, sort of some main things so uh, fast compressions deeper compressions and reduced time off the chest and that's to this day that's still really the key faster deeper minimal time off the chest all right so uh, the links start with uh, early recognition and activation of 911 and um, um, you know, dispatchers are playing a big role in instructing people on how to do CPR and you know, a big role in improving survival. And so uh, early bystander CPR uh, increases survival by at least uh, double and sometimes triple. And um, defibrillation within three to five minutes uh, can increase survival rates anywhere from 49 to 75%. <coughs> and where we typically see the highest survival rates are in public places like airports and casinos where they've got uh, AEDs all over the place and people are trained in AEDs and uh, I think Chicago's O'Hara Airport has one of the highest resuscitation rates of somewhere around 75% which is quite remarkable. Seattle is another place that's famous for its high success rates but uh, Seattle um, they 
they only include, um, in their statistics, they include patients in VF arrest, <coughs> and everywhere else includes all cardiac arrest. So, you know, for example, in Peel region, I think their survival rate from cardiac arrest is somewhere around uh, 13 to 16%. That's really high when you include all cardiac arrest, including, you know, the patients who've probably been VSA for three, four hours, but they're not rigored, they're not code five. So that's pretty high. If you excluded all the asystolic arrests and the PEA arrests and only included VF and VT, the survival rate's probably closer to 34% or 35%, which is really quite remarkable. Um, you, might, um, you might read about the OPAL study from uh, years ago. That was the Ontario Pre-Hospital Advanced Life Support Study. And it was intended to compare ALS versus BLS, so BLS with a defibrillator, but ALS versus BLS in cardiac arrest survival. And they found no difference between ALS and BLS. But <coughs> since then, there hasn't been a study of its kind since then, but I can tell you just anecdotally uh, from base hospitals that track cardiac arrest, the, uh, the survival rate from uh, pati for patients who receive advanced life support is anywhere between five and 10% higher than uh, survival from PCP only. So, so that's, but that's anecdotal. That's, uh, you know, uh, Ian would tell you they probably have to do a whole new study similar to OPAL's to see uh, where survival rates are now. Um, and I think, um, just on that note, I think a big part of that is that now that we've got better quality CPR in place than we had back during the OPAL study, it's, it's uh, given us a little bit more time for advanced life support to do its thing. So response time. So shortening response times improves um, uh, survival from sudden cardiac arrest. Interesting thing, um, as you know, I think we talked about this before, the, the gold standard for um, uh, response times in Ontario is to arrive um, in less than, equal or less than eight minutes and 59 seconds, 90% of the time. Now. Uh, few services achieve that number because most services have a combination of urban, suburban, and rural. And when you factor in the rural and suburban and those delayed response times, it's virtually impossible to meet that eight minutes and 59 seconds. So, but what's bizarre about that, and this probably drives Ian nuts, is that eight minute, 59 second standard is the standard for all code four calls but it's all based on less than 2% of the call volume, which is cardiac arrest. So the entire uh, emergency medical services system is driven by cardiac arrest, which, as I say, accounts for less than 2% of the call volume. It's a crazy system, it makes no sense. And in fact, if you wanted to follow the evidence for cardiac arrest, we should be arriving in six minutes or less, not eight minutes, 59 seconds. But. Uh, Arriving six minutes or less, even if you bring fire into the equation, is cost prohibitive. It makes no sense. What makes sense is things like getting AEDs into people's homes. What makes sense is getting more bystanders trained in CPR. Uh, what makes sense is uh, drone delivery of defibrillators, which is 
happening, if it hasn't started yet, it's going to happen soon in Peel. It's already happening in Renfrew County, as you know, right? And um, so that's going to be, uh, it's going to be really interesting to watch uh, the whole drone delivery of defibrillators thing. I'm hoping at some point I get a cardiac arrest when I'm uh, out there in, in the public and I can call a drone in. That would be so cool. I wonder what happens if you get excited and run into the blades. Do they stop? I don't think they're, uh, I think they're just plastic, right? They just probably stop when you hit them. They'll end up with a little bit of a bruise. But, um, what we need is a battery strong enough so you can hook up defib pads to your phone, right? Like James Bond. Remember, do you remember, remember the last James Bond where he defibrillated himself? Yeah, yeah. And then, and then he asked her if she's all right. You shock him. That's, that's what any good person does. You know, you shock yourself and then you ask other people if they're okay. These weren't plugged in. That's what happened. They weren't plugged in. Oh, they weren't plugged in. No, and then he goes to PSA and then she shocked him. Oh, she shocked him. Okay, I forgot. I got to watch that movie again. Yeah. Casino Royale, that's it. Yep. All right, so we know depth of compressions makes a big difference. And again, I won't test you on stats, so we don't have to worry about that. But um, uh, in s these are s based on studies in hospital. They found that 40% of the chest compressions were of insufficient depth. That was, uh, these were in hospital studies. The rate of compressions is critical. and. Uh, 100 should be the minimum. It should probably be 120. The, the, the guidelines recommend one, 100 to 120. Is that somebody's phone? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and um, uh, I, would, I would recommend staying on the high side. That would be my advice. Um, interruptions, so um, in hospital studies, this is actually surprised me that it's this low. They found that uh, no chest compressions were provided for 24 to 49% of the total rest time. I can tell you when I was teaching advanced cardiac life support um, uh, for many years, when we trained doctors and nurses and they ran mock arrests, like scenario arrests, like you do, uh, they, they would stop compressions and no one would say, you know, someone start compressions. And uh, I've been to many cardiac arrests in hospital where there were just extraordinarily delays, like delays up to a minute before someone started compressions again. And that's just unheard of now, uh, right? But back then it was, uh, it was really terrible. And what's funny is, um, you know, as a medic teaching ACLS to docs and nurses, I was trying to emphasize like all of these drugs, all these other things that we're doing, advanced airway management, administering epinephrine, amiodarone, lidocaine, et cetera, is worthless unless we do good CPR, unless we do good basic life support. And um, it was uh, a lot of my message and the message of other paramedics teaching that just fell on deaf ears until the evidence came out and said, yeah, CPR is probably more important than anything else we do. We even know that, uh, what's the first line drug for every cardiac arrest for, from an ALS perspective? What first line drug do they give? Yeah, epinephrine. And uh, epinephrine's, I'm pretty certain, is going to be pulled from the uh, American Heart Association guidelines this next round. So I think uh, we're probably not going to be um, 
advanced care paramedics are probably not going to be giving epinephrine. Or if they are, they're going to be giving it very differently, like push dose epi, where they're giving tiny little doses or running it as a drip. But we'll see. I don't know. There's been, there's been talk about uh, epinephrine studies here, and I don't know if any are going on at the moment. So <coughs> the other recommendation is that um, at least if there's an ACP crew on scene or, or a single ACP on scene, is that we run the cardiac arrest and stay on the scene. Because the, uh, you know, if, if you can do everything that would be done in a hospital, which is what you essentially do when you've got an ACP on scene. Um, the trouble is the minute you start to move that cardiac arrest patient, the quality of CPR and ventilation oxygenation just plummets, right? So chances of resuscitating them are really poor. The recommendation, and they've actually defined this out in a big study that was done, I think out of Australia, is uh, a minimum 35 minutes on scene time. Um, there's no max, but probably, you know, once you've hit about 45 minutes to an hour, it's time to transport to hospital or get a termination resuscitation. <coughs> the general rule is any patient who's in a shockable rhythm should never have CPR discontinued. Like, no, nobody should die in a shockable rhythm. That's, um, that's the consensus of um, most of the research. But uh, there are some patients who die in VF and uh, are just resistant to all, all treatments, at least all pre-hospital treatments. And that's one of the reasons why if you get a VF arrest and they haven't responded to, let's say, six shocks on scene or seven or eight shocks on scene and, um, you know, a regimen of uh, epinephrine every four to five minutes, it's time to initiate transport with those patients and uh, try to maintain good quality CPR. So. Um, so CPR provides, you know, artificial oxygenation, artificial ventilation, artificial um, circulation, uh, but to a limited extent. So um, it, it prolongs the VF time, which increases the likelihood the shock will terminate the VF. Um, it's especially important if a shock isn't delivered in the first four to five minutes uh, or more minutes after collapse. and. Um, uh, so yeah, chances of, um, uh, so for every minute without CPR, survival from witness VF decreases by 7 to 10%, and every passing minute without a defibrillation results in about the same uh, decrease in survival rates. So bystander CPR uh, survival averages 3 to 4% uh, per minute from collapse to defibrillation and um, has been shown to double or triple survival. And uh, so <coughs> the basic approach, as you know, is to um, uh, initiate CPR and get the defib pads hooked up uh, quickly and then deliver shock without too much delay. <coughs> there have uh, been a number of studies that have looked at, a while back there was a study out of um, California that, that uh, would have suggested that um, in an unwitnessed or cardiac arrest, so unwitnessed by medics, two minutes, a minimum two minutes of CPR before shocking might have improved survival. But um, similar studies have uh, replicated that first study and found there's no difference. So, so the bottom line is, let's say it's you and your partner and you arrive on scene and you're the only two on scene. One of you will start chest compressions. The other one will get the defib pads out and hook those defib pads up right away. And then you analyze the rhythm and shock if shock is indicated as simple as that. So you might be doing chest compressions for 30 seconds to a minute during that time. Is that sort of what you've done in the lab? Mm -hmm. Okay. And have you done uh, uh, like a, 
a pit crew type of CPR exercises in the lab where you're rotating people around and you've all got certain roles and you have to done that? Okay. And um, speaking of which, we haven't done this yet and I haven't talked to Ian about it, but uh, are any of you interested in doing a cardiac arrest workshop this semester? It'll probably have to take place on a weekend, but, uh, but you get your CPR card out of the process as well. So I don't know how many of you need your CPR card right now if it's already current, but yeah, you're okay with that? Okay. Have, did we run a, did any of you attend a cardiac arrest workshop last year? Just one? Okay. Yeah, I think you'll find it valuable because what, what Ian and I do is we, uh, we, we run through about six hours of cardiac arrest and it's just a VFRS, a VFRS, a VFRS, a PEA arrest, a PEA arrest, an asystolic arrest, asystolic arrest. There's very little time for debriefing. It's just practice over and over and over again. But the idea is to, um, the idea is to practice a pit crew approach to CPR where you get the most efficient use of resources. So people are coming in and out of chest compressions and one person will be dedicated to the airway and you know, you'll insert a supraglottic airway and so on and so forth. Okay, so I'll talk to Ian and see if we can uh, make that arrangement. Um, and by the way, I'll post the link to register for the PHTLS course for November 23rd as well. I just got, um, just got the email yesterday afternoon for the course. So we'll get started on that. So uh, what does defibrillation do? It doesn't, it doesn't restart the heart. If, if anything, it, it sort of shuts everything down. Um, so when you've got VF, right? You've got uh, hundreds of ectopic foci in the ventricles. And uh, so you've got, a, we'll say, a pad up here and a pad down there. And uh, what, what defibrillation does, AC current or DC current? DC. DC, DC current, yeah. Yeah, they call it a, a DC current counter shock. Um, in the early days of uh, electricity, you know, when they're hooking up, uh, putting up telephone poles and running electrical wires into homes and everything um, using alternating current. What they found were some of the lines men, because they were men, all men, uh, were suffering cardiac arrest. They were getting electrocuted and suffering cardiac arrest. And they went to uh, John Hopkins University um, to see if they could do some research and find a safer way to, um, uh, to construct uh, electrical grids and systems, you know, so people weren't getting electrocuted. But in the process, what they found, they were uh, basically electrocuting pigs with direct current. And uh, what they found was that if they, um, or, or elec uh, electrocuting pigs with alternating current, sorry. And what they found was if they um, shock the pig who was in ventricular fibrillation using direct current, they called a counter shock, they could get the heart beating again. And so that's how they discovered the, uh, the value of defibrillation using direct current. So they, sometimes when you read in the literature about um, cardiac arrest management, you'll see uh, the term counter shock, and that's what it's, it's a reference to that, uh, those early studies from John, Ho John Hopkins University. So what happens when you d deliver direct current, and, um, uh, and it's most defibrillators, they use biphasic technology where there's a 
current that goes in this direction and then back in that direction. It's just a, basically a wave of uh, direct current uh, with the, the hope that it will eliminate all of those re-entrant ectopic foci in the ventricles and basically render the heart asystolic in the hopes that the heart's intrinsic pacemaker, the SA node, will kick in and start firing. Right, so it doesn't actually restart the heart. The heart, if anything, the heart restarts itself. Um, the direct current just es essentially eliminates all that ectopy. So, so, da -da -da, da -ba -da -da. Uh, so in terms of uh, ABCs for cardiac arrest, um, you know, we take a CABCD approach for cardiac arrest. CABC meaning, you know, if they look dead, basically you hook up the defibrillator and start. Um, you know, we start chest compression and defibrillating. You'll find that 99% um, uh, of you will have good instincts when it comes to uh, people who are sick and dead. And when you see a dead person, uh, almost everyone on the planet, with few exceptions, know that they're dead just by looking at them. The position, you know, the, the open-eyed stare. Uh, you know, you'll see someone on the sidewalk and you'll be thinking, that's not a drunk person. Like, even a drunk person wouldn't lay in that position. Or, uh, you know, people don't fall asleep on the toilet, sort of bent right over with the head almost on the ground and long strand of saliva hanging from their lip, you know, pretty guaranteed, pretty much guaranteed their VSA. So um, the bottom line is, as a healthcare provider, you're gonna recognize VSA patients probably without doing any assessment whatsoever, just a pure observation, visualization, and you know, you put them into a position that, that works for you and you'll start compressions right away and then hook up the defibrillator. So, um, you know, hence the rationale for C coming before, before A and B. But uh, when it comes to the airway, um, we use a head tilt chin lift <coughs> and, uh, or jaw thrusts uh, if trauma suspected. Now, um, when it comes to traumatic VSAs, uh, about 2% of uh, blunt trauma VSA patients will have a spinal cord injury, and our priority is still airway. Um, but if you've got a traumatic VSA, we're always gonna assume, well, we're not always gonna assume, but um, it's probably a wise idea to assume that uh, they may have a spinal injury. You know, even if it's a, if it's a stabbing, it's highly unlikely. Even if it's a gunshot wound, it's highly unlikely. And if they do have a cord injury from a gunshot wound, it's probably not an injury where manipulating the neck would have any impact on it. You know, that gunshot wound could be in the thoracic spine or could be, but anyway, you're not gonna know because they're VSA. But uh, if they've got blunt trauma, you know, we can just assume that they've got a, a C-spine injury until proven otherwise and just use a jaw thrust as opposed to a head tilt chin lift. But if you need to use a head tilt chin lift to open the airway, then that's what you do. Um, Supraglottic airways have become the uh, airway of choice now. Um, even advanced care paramedics, I, I, could, uh, I could see endotracheal intubation being removed from their scope of practice altogether. In Australia, the only ones who uh, endotracheally intubate patients are the critical care paramedics. Um, and uh, so there's, they're a small group of people. And one of the reasons they do that is because to be proficient at intubation, you have to practice. And the only way to practice is to get OR time. And it's very expensive to get OR time. Uh, so 
it's better to have a small group of maybe first responders who are trained in endotracheal intubation. But the research has shown that uh, survival is as good or better with supraglottic airways versus endotracheal intubation. So I think we're probably going to see endotracheal intubation fall by the wayside. Uh, so breathing, um, we know that uh, if a patient appears to be VSA, appears to be unresponsive, uh, and they've got gasping respirations, those are probably agonal respirations, and they're probably a VSA, and, and uh, you know, we shouldn't let that deter us from doing chest compressions. The first time I ever seen agonal respirations, no one had ever told us about agonal respirations. In fact, I think um, uh, back then, hang on a second here. Um, so I didn't know what it was when I first saw it, and uh, I thought, this is really freaky. Like, this guy is breathing, but I don't feel a pulse. And so I just, my gut said, I got to do chest compressions on this guy. Um, but uh, I've seen numerous patients with agonal respirations since then. And so we're going to start chest compressions, hook up the defibrillator quickly. Um, the good news about agonal respirations is um, if they've got agonal respirations, the prognosis is probably fairly good. Uh, if it's a cardiac event, uh, <coughs> because it tells you that it's a fresh arrest. And when you're doing a rideouts, I don't know if any of you have had this kind of a call when you're doing a rideouts, but if, you, if you're doing a rideout and you get a call for a patient who's unconscious with irregular respirations, it's almost always VSA. Anyone had that experience? Yeah? No? Okay. okay. Or the other one I like is um, patients unconscious and short of breath. So that usually <coughs> means agonal. Because you know, people don't know how to describe it, right? So if they're unconscious, short of breath is probably a VSA with agonal respiration. So that's the patient you're going to be uh, pretty aggressive with. <coughs> um, so agonal respirations, we treat them like they're not breathing. Uh, gasping respirations and pulses, we do CPR, obviously. And uh, when we're doing CPR, we're doing cycles of two minutes to two breaths. Uh, we're looking for chest rise. We're going to monitor end tidal CO2 uh, during cardiac arrest. And um, you know, it's funny, uh, we, uh, primary care paramedics, were not monitoring end tidal CO2 during cardiac arrest until uh, maybe seven years ago, five to seven years ago. It wasn't that long ago. And, uh, you know, a number of us, uh, a number of ACPs, at least the service where I worked, we, we said to uh, our medical director, like, why are they not monitoring end CO2 with a bag valve mask or with a supraglottic airway? It just makes so much sense. And finally, it started happening. And, um, you know, I was actually telling primary care paramedics to just do it anyway, because end CO2 is not a controlled act. And uh, it's a good idea when you're doing CPR to get a, a sense of where the end CO2 is at. <coughs> So CPR, good CPR, you know, fast, deep compressions with minimal off the chest time will produce anywhere upwards of 33 to 35% of uh, cardiac output, the equivalent of cardiac output, which is not bad. Um, the other thing to remember is when you're dead, your metabolic demands are actually lower. So it sounds odd, but uh, that's just a fact. So, um, you know, achieving uh, cardiac output of 80% is not necessary to resuscitate a patient. And um, so 
consequently, you know, the volume, tidal volume and respiratory rate to maintain effective oxygenation uh, is, is low, right? So 10 breaths per minute, maybe, that's all we need. Really, we don't need to hyperventilate them. And just enough tidal volume to get chest wall rise. Yeah, mm -hmm. Bradley? Um, is there, what would cause like an ATCO2 of like E90 in like Um, That's really unusual. Probably a patient who's a COPD or to begin with. Okay. So, yeah. Would, could epi be part of it? Uh, it could be. So it depends on the cardiac arrest. Is this a PEA patient? No, I And had an end title of 90. That's amazing. Um, so, like it was, it was constantly jumping, but it was it was high, like it was very high. So if it was constantly jumping, you're probably getting artifact. Uh, that makes me very suspicious that those numbers are not correct. But that's just that's just artifact. When you say constantly jumping, what do you mean like by it, that exactly? Like it would stay high. It would stay okay. Like fairly high, but I mean it would jump from like 75 to 88 to okay. 90 in that range. Like, it would yeah. stay between there, but it would, so I don't know. It was weird. That is weird, and that's extraordinarily high for an asystolic arrest. Mm -hmm. Sometimes with PEA. So PEA is oftentimes considered a low cardiac output arrest state, because oftentimes they've got cardiac contractility, but they, their cardiac output is just so low, they're pulseless. Uh, but to have an entitled CO2 of 90 in an asystolic patient, that's really odd. It makes mm -hmm. me wonder if the, those numbers were just, um, Artifact, yeah. artifactual, is that a word? I don't know. Mm -hmm. It was more so like, it, I, it, I'm pretty sure I can't fully remember, but I, it started out not that high, but as we had kept going with that thing, it, yeah. and it started to <coughs> Epi got on board and then it started jumping more. Mm. So I wasn't sure yeah. that was like the prime reason of why it could be that high or? And Epi will do that, right? Because when you go into cardiac arrest, so we, we have this property of automaticity where our, um, our venules and arterioles and arteries maintain a constant state of contraction to maintain blood flow and adequate cerebral perfusion pressure and everything. But once you go into cardiac arrest, you lose all, uh, all of that and you vasodilate. And epinephrine, in theory, is, causes uh, vasoconstriction, gives you increased systemic vascular resistance, and theoretically improves blood flow to the vital organs, including the heart, uh, during cardiac arrest. <coughs> um, uh, so uh, it compensates for that and also as a consequence when you give epinephrine you're going to get increased CO2 from the tissue to the lungs exhaling so so that's not uncommon. The trouble with epi and the reason I said epi is probably going to be eliminated from uh, from the AHA guidelines is that um, patients who uh, get epi uh, in a recent study where patients got epi versus patients who didn't get epi uh, there was a higher return of spontaneous circulation rate in the epi group but uh, a lower survival rate because of brain damage. So um, so it may be the dose of epi or just maybe epi is not <coughs> helpful, right? <coughs> Has Ian talked about the research around cardiac arrest? Because that's his, that's his specialty. Yes, no? A little bit, yeah. So if you want to know anything about the research around cardiac arrest, ask, uh, Asking and he's the guy. So uh, when it comes to breathing, um, th the, uh, the mils per kilogram are not important. What's important is chest rise, right? You know this already when you're back valve mass ventilating. If you see chest rise, that's good, that's adequate. 
and um, PPV is ideally a two-person job. This is a little bit different from the slides that you might have. Uh, I didn't have this in there, but uh, positive pressure ventilation with one person holding the mask and the other one squeezing the bag would be the ideal approach to uh, PPV because you get a better seal that way. And title volume we already talked about. Uh, the title volume you end up delivering at mannequins is a little higher than that for <coughs> people. So. Um, so circulation, um, if you're going to do a pulse check, the recommendation is that pulse check lasts no longer than 10 seconds. And um, that's uh, class 2A evidence. And um, uh, if a pulse is uh, not definitively felt within 10 seconds, start chest compressions. We used to do 45 second pulse checks for hypothermic patients. We don't do that anymore. Um, and. Um, so um, the idea behind uh, compressions is to uh, change the intrathoracic pressure and that helps to generate forward movement of blood and uh, the, the semilunar valves in the venous system help to keep blood from backflowing, right? As you already know, we've already talked about this, I'm sure. And um, so um, we can generate some fairly high pressures with good compressions and um, you've heard about uh, CPR-induced consciousness. I think we've talked about this in class, right? Yeah, where sometimes good uh, chest compressions or a mechanical chest compressing device can actually generate enough uh, perfusion to wake people up. Yeah. I saw that once in our clinical, actually. We had this lady brought yeah. in by EMS. Yeah. Uh, we were, we, she was always talking. But while we were doing compressions and they were giving her and stuff, she was talking to us about her son and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, she's talking to me. And we saw compressions and she was like, yeah, so she was talking during compressions? Yeah. Yeah. What was it like for her to talk during compressions? Yeah, how many how many like how many words was she able to get out? Not many. Not many, yeah. But enough to not like, oh, you did this? Okay, like yeah. <laughs> Oh my god. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. Like I kind of knew what she was thinking Yeah. That is weird, yeah. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I've had two or three. <laughs> I've had two or three of those. Um, one, <laughs> one was a patient who was just gibberish, but the other two were speaking coherently. It's uh, it's a really disturbing uh, experience. It's really um, it's really a zombie experience. It is literally a zombie experience, right? right? Zombies don't eat brains, but they they talk to you while they're dead. Yeah. But it's pretty, pretty bizarre. <coughs> it's good. Um, it's good, uh, you know, Christmas Eve dinner conversation. <laughs> you know, talking about <laughs> dead people who talk. Uh, so compression rates we already talked about. Um, uh, that stuff you already know. These are just standards. Uh, now, <coughs> I don't know what you've been told in um, in lab, I'm guessing that you've been told that even after you insert a supraglottic airway that you uh, pause to give two breaths after 30 compressions, is that, or have you been told just to continue doing compressions without pauses? It's like one every 10 seconds. Okay, so continuous compressions? Yeah. Without pauses? Yeah. Okay, good, good, that's good, good. So we're not, we're not in conflict. But yeah, generally speaking, once you've got a supraglottic airway in place, um, you're going to do continuous compressions without pauses. So we just do uh, ventilations on the upstroke of the compressions, right? 
and you're probably not going to get a lot of time to get a ventilation in but probably enough to get a chest rise but here's the thing um, I can't emphasize this enough when you're working as a team <coughs> when you're working as a team for cardiac arrest If, um, if you're the person ventilating and you're not sure you're getting air in the lungs, tell the team. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. Just tell the team, I gotta reposition the airway because I'm not sure I'm getting airway in. If you're some other member of the team, like the chest compressor or someone else, and you notice like there's no chest rise at all from the ventilation, you gotta say something, right? We gotta function as a team, no egos. Yeah. So you're supposed to check your placement. So how yeah. are you doing that? Like, you just so check your placement. Your KLT's in, right? Right. You. Well, you tell me. How do you check so your placement? Your 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 um, right? Yeah. So the waveform will definitely be a key. Yeah, so um, there's also like just uh, the CHS guy's helpers. Also, you know, also just oscillate. Yeah, you're supposed to oscillate so as well. Supposed to do that while you're like in the middle of <coughs> the CPR. Um, so, uh, my, uh, two answers to that. You can auscultate while chest compressions are going on. It's a little trickier. Or at some point, you're going to probably pause to check a pulse and check the rhythm and um, have someone ventilate during that period and, and auscultate the chest. It's probably your best way. But, um, but yeah, um, now uh, traumatic VSAs, auscultation as quickly as possible is critical, right? Because if you've got a patient who's got a tension pneumothorax, that's a potentially a reversible cause of death. So you've got to auscultate early. And I really try to emphasize, with, emphasize this with the ACBs because they're the ones who are probably going to be doing the advanced airway management. And uh, you've got to auscultate early for, for traumatic VSAs for sure. But uh, yeah, you just get it in, get it in early, get it in whatever way you can. If you, if you can't do it during compressions, then, you know, uh, give it a minute until you do a pulse check and rhythm check. <coughs> so some special situations, so drownings, early ventilation is critical, um, in the water if possible, but again, this is something you and I don't typically do. We don't do, uh, we don't jump into lakes and ponds and pools and 99.9% .9 of the time when we arrive on seeing the patients out of the water. And um, uh, chest compressions, uh, actually the recommendation now, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna put a hold on this because uh, um, chest compressions are no longer done in the water. They used to be, uh, used to be standard, but uh, now it's no, no longer recommended. Just get them out of the water, that's the key. In the middle of the bay. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, when it comes to, to drownings, there's no foreign body airway maneuvers, so we don't throw people over barrels or do abdominal thrusts or chest thrusts. And um, the recommendation is about two minutes of CPR before calling 911. And um, whether you deliver, how, how many shocks you deliver will depend on whether you think the patient's hypothermic, right, if they meet the hypothermic protocol. Yeah. So you crossed out that it should be done out of the water, so. Oh yeah, out of the water. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> Jeez. I was actually smarter than I thought, but then 
and I was dumber than I thought because I crossed it out. Yeah, I should. Wait a minute. No, should not be done. Should be done should out be of the water. Out of water. Out of water. Okay, sorry. <laughs> in water one. I should probably <laughs> pause to actually read that thoroughly. <laughs> yeah, before. Okay, should be done out of the water. Okay, good. So stand in CPR. So post arrest, uh, the post arrest period is really important. And this is where you gotta um, take a little bit of a breath and start back from square one. So, um, uh, studies have shown that um, when patients um, get a return of spontaneous circulation or get a return of some sort of organized rhythm, there's a, a cardiac stunning effect that happens as a result of the an, you know, anoxia from, from cardiac arrest. And so these hearts, uh, the contractility is really poor and that's why you know, when you deliver a shock, we go straight back to compressions. So you know, when I first started in this business, we were told never compress a beating heart because you could stop it from beating. Now that's what we do mostly is we compress beating hearts. You know, in a PEA patient, those hearts are almost always contracting. So they're beating and they're contracting. And beating mean, you know, <coughs> valves closing and opening and so on and so forth. But um, um, in a cardiac arrest patient, post-shock, they may have uh, uh, a return of an organized rhythm, they may have a return of pulse, but it's likely gonna be weak pulse, there'll be some myocardial stunning and cardiac output will be poor. So we supplement that with chest compressions, basically. We're gonna do at least two more minutes of chest compressions. Um, some studies have actually suggested we should do more than two minutes of chest compressions, but two minutes is a standard right now. So, um, so you deliver shock, you go right back to compressions, you may or may not, you, you may, let's say you've got a return of spontaneous circulation, you've got a return of an organized rhythm, but you're gonna do compressions until you get to that next two minute mark and you're gonna check for pulse and rhythm at that point. Or when else would you stop compressions post-shock? What would be another indicator? What's that? They wake up, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they wake up. And hopefully it's not a CPR-induced uh, consciousness, uh, you know, but they actually wake up. We had a guy, um, I'm sure I told you the story. It was uh, a colleague of mine. His dad went into cardiac arrest uh, when they went for a walk out in the field in the middle of winter. And um, we delivered a shock. We went back to chest compressions. And then he started screaming. He was, ah! Uh, so we were pretty sure he was alive at that point. <laughs> sure, sure enough, he was. Um, did I tell you that story? Yeah, okay. Uh, <coughs> yeah, so yeah, if they, uh, if they wake up, then, uh, then we stop CPR. So we're gonna, uh, we're gonna go back uh, to the beginning, post-arrest. We're gonna reassess airway, breathing, circulation, disability. Uh, we're going to do a full set of vitals, including pulse oximetry. So while the patient's in cardiac arrest, putting a pulse oximeter on, not helpful. You're not going to get an accurate reading, but post-cardiac arrest, you've got to remember to pull the pulse oximeter on. Um, I've worked with medics who put the pulse oximeter right on right at, during cardiac arrest, just so they don't forget it if they get a pulse back. I like to think those people are probably Maple Leafs fans as well. They're, op oh. they're opti meaning they're optimistic. <coughs> That wasn't a criticism. I'm a Maple Leafs fan <laughs> uh, when I watch hockey. And uh, <laughs> I live with ladies. We don't watch hockey. <laughs> Except on special occasions. <coughs> and uh, uh, taking a blood sugar, do we take a blood sugar during cardiac arrest? No, no post-arrest. Because uh, 
Um, you know, when you've got stagnant blood in the periphery, the blood sugars may be uh, falsely low, and there's no benefit. So post-arrest, post-arrest, we uh, check uh, blood sugar. Post-arrest, we might administer Narcan, but typically not during cardiac arrest. Um, so even if you're dealing with a heroin overdose or a suspected heroin overdose, uh, Narcan comes after the, you know, pulses return. And uh, we've got ECG electrodes. Uh, we do a 12-lead ECG. W what's the point of doing a 12-lead ECG post-arrest? <coughs> what's that? Yeah, or why they went, we're looking for a STEMI, yeah. right? We're hunt hunting for a STEMI. So if they're a STEMI, we're gonna take them to a STEMI center. Um, now, it used to be the criteria was we'd take them to a STEMI center if, if uh, they had only 10 minutes of CPR, but now there's no, there's no limit to that anymore. Um, if they're STEMI, post-arrest, uh, we take them to a, uh, a PCI center. And um, um, what else was I gonna say? Um, if they re-arrest on the way to the PCI center, we initiate CPR again, go through the whole protocol, and uh, continue on to the PCI center. So there have been cases where they've continued CPR even on the table at the PCI center, and they've done angioplasty while the patient's in cardiac arrest. Yeah? How long after the rock do you So, um, there's no hard and fast rule on that except for one thing. So the recommendation is um, you should do a 12 lead at least 10 minutes after the last dose of epinephrine if you're working with an ACP crew. But other than that, we just try to get it early, fairly quickly, right? So there's gonna be a lot of things happening. <coughs> one person is probably gonna be doing vital signs. Someone else is gonna be getting them secured to a scoop stretcher or something. Um, so I would say if, um, if you've got to carry them in a scoop out of the house to get to the stretcher, I would do the 12 lead before you leave the house, right? So, so the person who's doing vital signs can probably do the vital signs and then hook up the 12 lead ECG. Get that done fairly quickly. As long as it's at least 10 minutes after. Uh, the other thing, uh, you know, to think about post cardiac arrest too is weaning them off oxygen. So, um, you know, you could disconnect the BVM from oxygen altogether and just see what their oxygen saturation is like. But again, um, you know, if their blood pressure is low, uh, post-cardiac arrest, they've got a low perfusion state, the uh, SpO2 may not be all that accurate, so you're gonna weigh that in. You know, um, you're gonna have um, high flow O2 uh, for to the BVM during cardiac arrest. You might wanna just keep that on for, you know, a uh, couple of minutes or so, and then uh, after that, reassess their SpO2 and then take them off the O2 and uh, see how they do. But it, you know, there's no hard and fast rule on that. I might actually wait till I get in the back of the ambulance before I disconnect, before I discontinue the O2 because <coughs> if I've got a, uh, a ROSC and I'm moving the patient from the upper floor of a house down the stairs, out the doors, onto the stretcher, securing onto the stretcher, moving the stretcher to the ambulance, loading the ambulance, that's a long time without oxygen, and you know the saturation could be normal or could be in their boots. So I might just hold off on disconnecting the O2 until we're in the back of the ambulance, and then try to get a sense of where their SpO2 is, where you know I can monitor it continuously. So I know I'd be curious to know what uh, Ian's opinion is on that. Any questions about adult cardiac arrest?
Ja.